Welcome to the People Experience Podcast, where thought leaders from SAP, NASA, and Shell share wisdom on how to engage employees, build community, and ultimately create a people-centric experience. Hi, everyone. I'm your host. I'm James Sinclair, the CEO of Alumni EX, the alumni experience platform that enables organizations to maintain a connection with their former employees to drive recruiting, sales, and brand advocates. You're on the People Experience podcast, where we have these amazing conversations with people doing amazing things. And going straight into it, I'm really thrilled to welcome to the show Brady Pyle, the Deputy Chief Human Capital Officer at NASA. And for every kid like me that dressed up as an astronaut, that stared into space, that read a brief history of time and has taken their kids to the desert to watch a meteor shower, this conversation really reminds me of a quote that I heard that may or may not be true, that when JFK was touring NASA, he stopped to ask a janitor what he does. And the janitor responded, I'm helping put a man on the moon. And so with that, I want to jump straight into the conversation, Brady. I want you to be able to introduce yourself. Please fill us in who you are, maybe a bit on your background, which is really interesting because you didn't specifically go searching for a job at NASA, from what I understand. And I guess, how does your executive leadership role drive the overall objectives of NASA? But I'm really keen to hear how you kind of got into this, fell into this, and got to the position, this amazing position that you're in today. Yeah, James, I'm really excited to be here, um, part of this podcast. And I know we're, we're recording it just a couple of days before Halloween is celebrated. So typically here in Houston, we'll see a lot of astronauts, uh, young astronauts walking around the neighborhoods. Uh, so it's, it's a fun time of year. Um, I started with NASA in the, the mid 1990s. I was a, a graduate student studying uh, HR management at Texas A&M. I had uh, undergrad work, had done work in public administration. I knew I wanted to work in the public service and uh, work for the government and um, had actually done some uh, cooperative education tours with the Department of Health and Human Services in their Dallas uh, Regional Personnel Office and then uh, in D.C. as well. That's when I really fell in love with HR, uh, went to grad school and reached out to different uh, federal agencies uh, here in Texas, um, doing a study of kind of how they were structured, how they how they operated. And um NASA had the opportunity uh, to come in as a generalist. Uh, very few wow. federal agencies offered kind of generalist consulting at the time. And so uh, began conversations with them of how I could get started and uh, landed, uh, was very fortunate to land an opportunity with NASA and uh, figured I'd be here a couple of years, moved to something different, but um, definitely got bit by the NASA bug um, and where you get to learn something new about the, the space program each day, uh, being part of human spaceflight, I think has just been been huge. Um, but I really resonate with the, the NASA culture, uh, the values of integrity, excellence, and, and teamwork. Uh, safety is also uh, a big, big part of what we do at NASA. Um, and had a lot of a lot of early lessons learned uh, as I went through through my career. Kind of learned um, the importance of work life balance as we went through our uh, shuttle accident in 2003. I was involved in a lot of uh, activities to hire people to get us back to flight. And um, at the time, had a young family, and so I would come home and eat dinner and help put the kids to bed and, and go back in. Got some very wise mentoring advice of uh, you know needing to take care of 
your relationship with your wife and take care of yourself as well. And so made some adjustments there and um, got fortunate to move into leadership roles. Uh, first leadership role, I thought, hey, the role of the leader is to share the vision with the team and um, right away learned, well, gosh, the, the team, they've got thoughts about the vision too. They don't want to just be handed the vision uh, from the leader. So uh, fortunately learned that very early in my leadership career, the importance of a shared vision and, and developing that together. And then um, uh, was also uh, blessed to be able to, to spend a year in DC, uh, worked at our NASA headquarters and then also worked at the World Bank, uh, stepped into executive role as HR director at the Johnson Space Center in the 2016 timeframe and did that role about three years and then moved into um, as NASA moved from a very decentralized HR uh, way of operating and we're, we're now managing functionally, I moved into the role where um, I'm responsible for leading the, the HR field executives and delivering HR service across NASA. Um, right. So it's an exciting place to be. It's been a, a fun run of now more than 25 years. So wow, uh, great, great place to be. That's amazing and, a, and an amazing reflection on the company. I want to pick up on something you just talked about, which is moving from a decentralized approach. Um, and, and the reason I want to talk about that is a majority of people that we speak to are, you know, in the public sector, organizations, enterprises. Could you perhaps give a little bit of understanding of what the HR function looks like at NASA and to the extent what you meant by that decentralization? Because we saw that with a lot of companies that had global offices, each with their own HR system, HR support, making their own decisions, kind of like almost a franchise model moving to this single source of truth. And I can't even imagine the effort that means, but I'd love to know a little bit more about what the HR function looks like at NASA and also kind of what that hierarchy looks like because you also talked about the fact that you know you come in with a vision but the reality is other people have a vision too and right. you know when you think about nasa you don't really think about it as part of the kind of armed services but i know that the you know start of nasa and you can correct me if i'm wrong had very dod ties very hierarchical militaristic ties which doesn't naturally present an opportunity for innovation or rising up or having an alternative view. So I know there's a lot of questions in there, but I guess somewhere around that, the HR function and the move away from perhaps this militaristic structure. Yeah, for, uh, gosh, nearly 60 years at NASA, um, uh, we were very decentralized. Sound, sounds a lot like what you're describing, kind of the franchise model. Um, so NASA has 10 uh, field center locations uh, across the United States. So we've got a couple of field centers in California. We've got the Johnson Space Center in Texas, where the Mission Control Center is, where the astronauts train. Uh, we have a field center in Alabama that's responsible for building rockets. Um, uh, of course, we have the, the Kennedy Space Center in Florida, uh, where the launches um, are managed and, and where our vehicles launch from. Uh, we have headquarters in DC, we've got uh, field centers in Maryland, um, Cleveland, Ohio. So the, the history of our organization is all of those field centers had an independent uh, HR organization. And then the local HR director, uh, local HR executive reported directly to a center director. So it was very decentralized. The headquarters function at the time um, 
provided kind of agency policy construct, but then each field center uh, would take that framework and, and adapt it to uh, kind of local needs. And, and each field center was responsible for ensuring the workforce capabilities and then stewarding local culture. Well, about three years ago, NASA said, um, hey, we're, we're in a flat budget environment, um, which uh, in the federal government today, that's actually a, a good posture. Uh, a lot of agencies are facing declining budgets. But with a flat budget, uh, you lose uh, buying power. So a lot of our money goes to um, procuring services for the mission. And NASA said, hey, we, we really need to get more efficient in our support organizations. So HR, CFO, IT, procurement, we're going to have all those functions uh, managed functionally rather than uh, in this decentralized approach. So uh, when that decision was announced and when we started the journey um, in HR, I actually moved from a position at the Johnson Space Center to kind of leading the, the HR executives uh, across the country and figuring out how do we move more to an enterprise uh, way of operating and uh, enterprise model for HR. Uh, a lot of challenges in that because the the center directors are still responsible for um, managing and developing their technical workforces locally, and so we've got to figure out how to how to operate as an enterprise but meet those local needs uh, as well. And there are very different cultures uh, from center to center that right. we support. So. Johnson Space Center, where I grew up, uh, heavily influenced by Mission Control, where you saw the movie Apollo 13. You had a team of people that came together, right. uh, worked hard to solve a real-time problem. And that that culture kind of permeates even the support organizations where uh, it's high action orientation, um, you know, solving problems kind of as they come. Uh, our research centers uh, operate very differently. They they have a more of a long term view, um, you know, do a little bit more strategic planning. The Kennedy Space Center, where we launch vehicles, uh, is very process oriented, and so bringing those different cultures together from an HR standpoint has probably been one of our larger challenges. Is there also I've got so many questions about that? Uh, I guess the first question around that is those multi-cultures is really diversity of opinion at its best. And, you know, if you go back to Apollo 13, failure is not an option. You know, I, I've, right. I've heard you talk about this where unfortunately or fortunately, that kind of mentality went all the way through the organization, including places it shouldn't. And I was on a call recently with a guy from, uh, from Boeing talking about innovation. And he was saying, when you build an aircraft, that is not the time to be agile because the consequences of building a plane and it going wrong are, are too high. He said, but you know, as an organization, it doesn't mean our entire organization needs to be Six Sigma led. We need to be agile until the last possible second and then move to kind of that Six Sigma waterfall requirements-based organization. And he was talking about a very similar topic that you talk about with failure is not an option with, that's just how we operate. Failure is not an option, but the reality is we have to be able to embrace failure, talk about failure, think about it. And instead of saying, this is what, this is how you're going to build it, we've got to move to this is what we're trying to achieve. And he was talking about design thinking and some of these principles that they brought into Boeing that have shaken up, you know, a legacy of this is how we're doing it. 
thank you, into what do you think? And so I'd love to hear about that kind of that failure is not an option and innovation cycle and how that permeated through the organization. Yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a great question. So the, the failure is not an option theme, um, you know, definitely applied in the, in the case of Apollo 13 when, when we were trying to bring the crew safely home and human life was at stake. And there, there are roles and jobs at NASA where human life is at stake and failure is not an option. But, you know, if, if you think about uh, our HR jobs, um, you know, we're, we are very seldom placed in uh, life or death scenarios. Uh, a lot of our a lot of our work is is very important. It supports the mission, but um, the failure is not an option theme. To, should not apply, and, and unfortunately, um, it had come to to kind of dominate the culture. So one of the things that um, the agency did, and and they did at the Johnson Space Center, was they they really initiated a a lean forward fail smart uh, award. They wanted to begin to recognize those efforts where uh, people were daring to try new things. They were taking, uh, taking new risks. They were persevering. You know, they, they looked at uh, how, how things could be successful and kind of had that never give up attitude. Um, they were demonstrating learning, you know, what, what lessons were being learned and carried forward uh, to the team and to the organization and then they were sharing those uh, lessons and, and ideas with others. And so the more we pushed out trying to recognize and reward those behaviors, um, you know, and to show that creativity and innovation was, was valued and, uh, hey, in, in certain parts of our business, failure is an option and, and almost failure is expected. And so leaning forward and failing smart became um, a mantra for those of us uh, in parts of the business where human life was not at stake. And right. uh, that really helped us uh, become more innovative. And how did you support, you know, I guess the people across the hierarchy, top to bottom in embracing that conversation? I mean, and especially ties now to you see the commercial efforts, SpaceX, Blue Origin, where you're seeing companies come in commercially and saying, we believe there's a better way. It's not saying NASA didn't know about it. It's not saying it wasn't something that you, you're aware of. It's saying, we believe commercially we can move quicker than you, faster than you, better than you. So in one respect, you now have healthy competition, which I think is is actually a tremendous thing. And, I, and obviously, I'm keen to hear your views. But now people have choices. The conversation of I want to go to the moon, when you look up at the stars, or I want to be part of it, whether you're the janitor or the astronaut, it really doesn't matter, is, is no longer I have to go work at NASA. Now there are options out there, um, which means uh, presumably as a workforce, you've had to think about talent retention, talent development being a great place to work, despite being you know, part of the government and, and all of those things that sometimes come with, with that. How have you kind of embraced that conversation of we want to be a cool, amazing, futuristic place to work that people choose us versus our competitors, theoretically? And I know the competitors are your partners, so I apologize for using the wrong terminology. Yeah, and, and frankly, we need we need the new space industry uh, to succeed. So we need SpaceX, uh, Blue Origin, um, and and others to to be successful if we're really going to to return to the moon and, and go on to Mars. Um, you know, if you if you look at NASA, uh, 
the average NASA employee is uh, 48 years old, about 18 years of experience. Um, that that is very much in contrast to uh, SpaceX and Blue Origin that are getting a a much uh, uh, younger workforce. Um, you know, with with the new ideas coming directly out of the the universities. If if you look at NASA too, we run yeah, roughly uh, five four to five percent attrition per year. So um, our ability to hire new talent is is fairly limited. Um, less than five percent of our workforce is under the age of thirty. So what what happens from a, a talent strategy perspective is um, we hire about half um, of our hires come from our uh, college programs. So we have uh, Pathways Intern. It used to be the old cooperative education program where uh, students, while they're going to university, uh, do different rotations in different parts of NASA. And then uh, once they graduate, uh, both we and the students kind of determine, you know, where's the best fit for them, uh, both individually and organizationally. Uh, the other half of our hires come from uh, the, the large contractor base and, and from space industry. So, um, you know, we tend to hire from, uh, you know, Boeing, Lockheed Martin, some of the, uh, the companies that we contract with as well. And so we, we really want, um, from, a, from a strategy perspective, we want folks to have different experiences come into NASA with new ideas and, and new perspectives because, uh, you know, a lot of, a lot of our workforce has been here for a while and, and, you know, have done things a certain way for a while. So to bring that innovation and, and creativity in, you know, we need to bring new perspectives to the table. So, um, you know, we're, we're excited about seeing how, um, the excitement is building, uh, around SpaceX, Blue Origin and others, um, and how that actually helps the NASA brand as well. Uh, we've, we have seen no slowdown in, in student interest in working at NASA. In fact, a recent survey conducted by Universum uh, said that NASA was the number one desired employer among engineering students. If anything, I would imagine it's become more attractive because it's yeah. potentially more accessible. Suddenly, you know, I watched the SpaceX documentary and I saw this amazing lady, you know, she's 27 years old and she's the program director. And so you go from the Apollo 13 where you need to be, you know, an older white male to be in that control room to a SpaceX Netflix documentary where she has the tattoos, the earrings. She she is her and she's her authentic self and she doesn't fit into the mold of public service. And yet she is part of the failure is not an option because what she does has no margin of error. And, you know, I've got to imagine that, you know, every little girl that watched that documentary saw her and was like, oh my God, I see me. And so that leads me kind of my next question around diversity inclusion as you talk about the age of your workforce and therefore I imagine to a certain extent the profile, the demographic profile of your workforce probably is naturally, you know, perhaps not exactly where you wanted and I defer to you. Um, so you have SpaceX, Blue Origin, Virgin, all of these coming out and they are an inclusive organization day one. NASA, I assume, has to make a, a change in how it talks about, thinks about, and drives that that inclusion approach. How does that kind of implement or, or think about in your HR strategy? Yeah, and um, actually, about a year ago, um, NASA actually, add, we added to our core values, uh, the core value of inclusion. 
because um, we were we were seeing that uh, we were making strides of becoming more diverse um, with uh, employees coming into the agency, and we needed to do more work on um, both our, our culture front and then also kind of talent development front uh, to make sure that 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 diversity and representation continue to grow within the agency. Um, I know that's been a big, that's a, that's a big part of our work within uh, human capital, within our team and our organization. Um, big focus of, of mine and, and my leadership team. I'm very, very pleased with the uh, diversity and representation of our, our HR executives Um uh, and, and one of the things we try to do within human capital is, uh, build that competency in, in diversity and, and inclusion. Uh, we've started here about six months ago. We had our first, uh, stand up for DEIA day, um, where we had different sessions, uh, different opportunities for our employees to learn, um, from one another, from dialogue. And then also, uh, articles, TED Talks, and, and different things that we were out, able to put out there on our uh, SharePoint site. And we had the second one of those earlier this week. Um, so a lot of engagement around, um, you know, lo- learning that competency, building that competency, because we feel like within HR, we, we not only need to model uh, that core value of inclusion, uh, but we're key advisors uh, right. to our managers and leaders about that. Um, and there's a lot of work going on um, across the, the U.S. federal government right now of looking at um, how our agency's doing uh, with respect to uh, workforce representation with uh, diversity and inclusion um, and, and how can you continue to improve in that regard. Um, so it's, it's an exciting time to be part of those efforts. And it's going to be amazing. Yeah. You know, and I imagine slower, you know, with 5% attrition, it's not as easy to make overnight change, you know, moving from decentralized to, to centralized, you know, 5% attrition, moving to more inclusive workforce, all of these things are not overnight. So it's very easy to look at SpaceX, which was just created and therefore was built on the core values that we live in today, whereas NASA was built on the core values that we lived in historically. And, and to a certain extent, you are having to to kind of almost fight to accelerate that change within, you know, your environment, which I, I've got to imagine um, is both amazing and challenging. Um, and so that's amazing. It's amazing to hear. And I know NASA talked about putting a woman on the moon, um, person of color on the moon. Uh, I saw those things out there. Um, and I think it's amazing to be front and center because I think it's amazing Look, NASA's the most amazing brand on Earth. It's the brand that you think about with Nike, with Apple. It's what the, you see in the movies. It's what you dream about, you know, when you look up to the stars. And so being able to see that representation, especially on TV now, and it's becoming so accessible, not only tourists in space. Yes, amazing. But I'm now watching, you know, I watched Chris Cassidy on on the uh, on, on the show that he did, uh, Among the Stars, I think it was called. Um and what you really got to see was actually how amazing it is. It's as amazing as you think it is. It's as exciting as you think it is. And and the support team, and I kind of want to move to that. I wanted to move to, to, to really what we saw about. And I watched it with my family because it's amazing. And we're all obviously space junkies. Um, you know. Hey, hey, and James, let me let me interject one one thing real quick. You, you mentioned about um, NASA re- returning to the moon and... Um, 
it was interesting because the, uh, the, the previous presidential administration had actually put the charge for NASA to put the first woman on the moon, um, by 2024. So they had laid out some goals and, um, and, and then branded that whole effort, the Artemis program. Yeah. So Artemis is the, the sister to Apollo. The Apollo program was the program in the 1960s that took us to the moon. And, um, what typically happens, uh, with NASA, when you have a presidential administration change is, is the new president comes in, scraps the previous human spaceflight goals and, and creates their own. And what we saw when, when President Biden's administration came in is um, they, they liked the goal of, of returning to the moon. Um, they liked the goal of, of putting the first woman on the moon. They added the piece about, hey, let's, let's also put the first person of color on the moon as well. So they kind of built upon that goal, which has been very unusual. If, if you look at NASA's history with human spaceflight, um, uh, we've had different uh, goals and programs under President Obama. We were going to uh, go to an asteroid. Uh, he wanted to go further than the moon, so he wanted to go to an asteroid. We were making preparations for that. President Trump came in, canceled that program, and gave us the moon declaration. So this is very unusual in NASA's history to see kind of the continuity uh, between two administrations. Just wanted to point that out for your listeners. I mean, that's an amazing point that I didn't even think about. So thank you for that. How does that impact kind of long term planning? So, you know, as an example, look, we're, we, uh, you know, we sell into the federal government and there is a lot of things you learn, including the fact that the government has the right to cancel any contract at any time for any reason. And that's just how it works. And there's all of these amazing things um, that that kind of give a little bit of pause to long term planning or or if that makes sense. Yes, the government is sticky. Yes, in general, once you're in, you're in. But actually, things change administration to administration. And one of the things we heard from some of the other agencies that we've spoken to is, you know, they had some brain drain, for example, in the past few years, where a number of people left and went into the private sector. And now they're thinking coming back. So I guess my question is, how do you long term plan when your goals or the goalposts are, are potentially going to be moved or removed entirely? Yeah, it, it makes it hard. Uh, in fact, it's it's really hard on the workforce when they're working toward a particular program or, or launching a particular project or satellite that um, that then the funding goes away or uh, you know something happens with that. And, and NASA is on an annual budgeting cycle, so kind of at the uh, we're at the mercy of, you know, the president negotiating with Congress for year to year funding. And sometimes uh, the, the president has a little little bit different thought about what NASA should be doing than the Congress does. So right. uh, that puts us in a spot of, of trying to work through those things. But, um, yeah, we, we have faced uh, challenges when when different big programs have been canceled, where um you know, folks who've been invested in those and working those get, there's a level of frustration. Um, we see some attrition out of that. Uh, generally, folks are able to make that pivot. So from an HR perspective, um, we stay focused on, you know, what are the skills and capabilities that we need longer term, whether no matter what destination or what uh, mission or project, um, 
our our skill profile needs are, are relatively consistent across mission profiles. So that that helps. And then we we do a lot of um, discussion and and training and, and leveraging internal uh, voices of people who've been through those kinds of things to, to build resilience in our, in our team, uh, you know, from mission change to mission change. Yeah. Like a, you have a support network <laughs> when you get the bad, right. when you get the bad news, phone this 1-800 number, there's a, there's someone on the other end to walk you through it. We have, we have thousands of people here who've been, been through what you're going through. Yes. That's a, you know, that's amazing. I've got to, again, imagine that adds complexity, uh, you know, especially when you're competing with the private sector, you have all of these kind of impediments that you didn't ask for, didn't design, perhaps do or don't make sense. And so as an organization trying to invest in your people, especially when we think about talent retention, you know, I, I think, mm -hmm. look, within the major space industry, talent retention is very high. And from what my colleague at Boeing was saying, and, and I'm here keen to hear your thoughts was, well, you can't really take these skills very many places. It's not like you can lift and shift the fact you worked on a solar panel for the moon and go do that for Walmart. There's only two other vendors in the world that might potentially even have interest in 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 that. So they were talking about the fact that they have to really develop core competencies, core skills, because they want their labor force to be more fluid. They want their labor force to go to the private sector and come back and those type of things. How, how does, I guess, that conversation about talent retention, skill retention, competency retention, and also outsider perspective leaving sometimes is the greatest thing you can do to someone go out there and see what's in the in the other world and come back and bring all those private sector ideas back into nasa how do you guys think about that yeah so so james i've got a little little different view of that so here locally in houston we had one of those one of those presidential administration shifts where we we were flying the space station program flying the space shuttle program and then we were planning to transition to uh, what they called the Constellation Program, which was a, a program to get us back to the moon and onto Mars. And uh, that, that program was actually canceled at the beginning of uh, President Obama's administration. And, and then the space shuttle uh, was, was planned to uh, retire in the 2011 timeframe. So we had a major um, workforce shift about um, between 25% and 30% of our local workforce. So that was a combination of um, civil servants or government employees and, and local contractors um, were losing their jobs because originally they were going to transition into the Constellation program and then that strategy shifted. And the strategy shifted very intentionally back then when uh, the Obama administration wanted to drive more business to and, and create more of a new space industry. So we had more um, opportunities for, for SpaceX and um, Blue Origin and others to participate with us in, in sending uh, uncrewed missions up and down to the, the space station. Um, so more money was poured into to that and building up the space industry. And we now see the results of that, you know, many years later. But my role at the time was uh, to work with uh, what we called the JSC team, which was um, executives from our, our local contracting companies uh, and executive leaders from, from the government side as well, to also work with our uh, state employment experts 
in translating uh, folks who had spent a whole career working on space shuttle to other industry. So we have other industry in Houston, like we've got uh, oil and gas, we've got the medical industry. Right. Um, there are other industries and we did a lot of work to translate skills and capabilities that our scientists and engineers had uh, from space talk and from um, what they do in space to these other industries. And we actually had success in, in moving uh, a lot of skills and capabilities to other industry locally. And that was important to us strategically because we thought, hey, if there's ever a need to pull uh, on those skills and that workforce again, they'll at least be available locally. So I think there's a lot of um, a lot of what's done in aerospace that can be and is translatable to other industries. We actually saw that, I would say, at the end of the, the shuttle program. It's just we have our own language and our own way of thinking about it right. within the aerospace community. Um, so we had to work extra hard to help help people translate those skills to other industry. They're things that they're doing that definitely are translatable. And um, yeah, uh, so, yeah, we, we continue to try to be very intentional about that. I mean, it's the most amazing employment retention reorganization at such a major scale. We're not talking about closing a store in a city where you need to move some people to another store. You're talking about, you know, these major projects ending and how do you make sure that human capital stays and that knowledge, that tribal knowledge stays in the building and in an attractive way for the for the for the people. I mean, You've got to be an aggressively employee-led organization to be able to pull something like that off and people to be accepting of that, willing of it, and excited by it. I mean, people know their destiny. They know their project is going to end at some point. I'm not sure everyone thinks about what's going to happen the, you know, the next day after they've had margaritas. Um, you know, but, but I think it's an incredible reflection of NASA that perhaps people don't realize, which is how insanely employee-led you have to be to be able to move that type of population, either not reskill them, but understand that these competencies actually have application in other areas of our organizational units, and we can give you that smooth transition. So when it comes to learning and competencies, is that also now centralized in terms of how you manage and think about and potentially reward people? Yeah, so it's, it's actually today is more of a, of a hybrid model. And, and I would say, even, even if I look back to the, the shuttle experience, um, the workforce that remained, we, we had some skill development to do. To We had a group of, of engineers and project managers that had worked on the operations portion of the uh, project lifecycle, and they were now moving to the development side of the project lifecycle. So we had, we invested pretty heavily in training the development to reskill uh, a lot of engineers to, to where they could reframe uh, what they did from an operational point of view to a development point of view. But uh, today, how, how it works is, um, like I said, the center directors are still responsible for managing and developing their, their technical workforce. Um, we have a, an enterprise um, uh, learning strategy and an, and an agency learning officer that devises kind of overarching um, learning and development strategies. A lot of our leadership development is now uh, consistent across the agency where it wasn't uh, right. a number of years ago. Um, 
but the technical workforce development, the, the skills they need for um, and the competencies they need locally is, is still fairly decentralized. So it's kind of a hybrid model right now. Yeah, amazing. And I have, you know, I don't envy your role in the slightest bit of having to manage that. Um, if we now take this conversation kind of a little bit to, and I went off track into this conversation of Chris Cassidy, this this thing where we all got to see how NASA sent someone to, you know, to the stars, to the International Space Station. And one of the things that I noticed, uh, or my family noticed, was that everywhere he went, he was surrounded by a village. His friends from his SEAL days, his friends from NASA, his friends from peer space programs in other countries, and also former employees or former people. Like there was one event where he was at where there was old or ex-NASA employees that turned up to support him and to be part of that. And what it led me to believe, you know, being in the alumni relations space is NASA has actually had the first alumni program on Earth because you never let go of your astronauts or your intelligence or your tribal knowledge. You may be retired, but you you never get to actually leave, leave because, you know, once in, always in. Um, but I mean, you really got to see it on screen, the power of that community. We all think about a single astronaut going up there the hundreds of people that supported him and his extreme appreciation for them and what they do and getting him there and safely. I mean, it kind of culminated in, you know, and he has a seat on the Soyuz and it cost 88 million. And you're like, that's a very expensive seat. There must be a lot of people to make sure, (laughs) make sure it's worth it. But I want to talk a little bit about community and support Mm -hmm. for one another through good, through bad, through difficult and through joyous and how NASA thinks about that that internal community, and maybe that is also an external community, but maybe just the word community and what that applies to NASA. Yeah, and I, I would say, like in the the astronaut experience, um, it's it's very important for us to to select uh, folks into the astronaut core that really really understand and live our our core value of teamwork. So um, a core part of that that whole selection process is. Hey, how did the candidates treat uh, the receptionists? How did they treat the nurses? Um, how did they treat the, the the people they may not have considered part of the process? Because at the end of the day, we want astronauts who 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 really kind of model and and appreciate that value of, of teamwork. You you mentioned earlier about the the janitor who said you know his job was to help help put a man on the moon. Uh, back in the '60s, and is that a true quote? Or did I make that up? It is. It, it actually, it's a. It is a true story. I love that. And uh, I, I think that the sense of mission is just uh, is is palpable at NASA. You you can you can feel it, and um, uh, so folks feel connected to an astronaut like Chris Cassidy, and and of course he's. Uh, you know, he's even unique in that world with his his personality and his way of engaging people. Um, so it's it's easy to to cheer for and and support a hero like like Chris. But it's also everyone supporting everyone else at every step of the way. And I mean, everything that was so interesting to me, specifically being in the community business about getting a peek into that, was you would never know this was a government organization. This looked, every step looked like a group of friends, you know, incredibly educated, uh, performing an incredible task. And that sense of community and camaraderie 
was just absolutely everywhere. And it wasn't just, you know, the astronaut down. It was between all parties. Is there a, is does, does NASA take steps to cultivate kind of teamwork, community, embracing each other, being a good team player? That's a great point, James. So, yeah, when I started my career in the in the mid '90s here in Houston, um, you know, you you come from a college environment um, on onto the Johnson Space Center uh, campus, and it's actually designed like a college campus because originally the the land and property was um, part of Rice University, and they figured, hey, if this NASA thing doesn't work, uh, it'll it'll become part of Rice University. So uh, it was built like that. And then there are even intramural fields. So softball fields, basketball leagues, um, different ways to, to engage um, outside of work. And so, yeah, for many years, I was out on the softball fields and, and you build relationships with folks across the team uh, differently out there in the softball field. You, you build a sense of community, like you're saying. Um, I, I can tell you that's that's one of our struggles right now. Um, we're all working like this. Uh, at least yeah. 95% of, of NASA uh, worked virtually here until a few months ago when uh, we've, we've got 20 to 25% of our folks on site now. And so we've, we've lost the, uh, the ability to, to do the softball leagues and basketball leagues. Um, right. Uh, during the pandemic response, and so we're we're really wrestling with okay, how do we, how do you replicate that virtually? And if we can if we can replicate the sense of community virtually, um, we can reach beyond kind of geographic boundaries as well. So, um, actually, one of the things I'm missing right now is as we're recording this is our our human capital team uh, puts on occasional. Uh, occasional fun events. So they've got a virtual dance party going on right now. I'm so sorry. Well, they probably appreciate the fact that I'm not dancing right now with them. But. I, I was about, I was about to say the, uh, you know, I think everyone <laughs> probably appreciates that, that, uh, you know, when anyone thinks about, I'm thinking about my, my daughter always thinking about me when I dance and her first thought is, would rather you didn't if it's okay. <laughs> right. Right. Please don't dad. Yes. <laughs> uh, so, you know, but you talk about something really important, which is if you can solve this problem, which is how do you create the sense of high five community, looking in the whites of someone's eyes and shaking their hand builds relationships. It just does touch does. But if you can solve that, what it actually means is your micro communities can go global, as you talked about. And suddenly there's an opportunity to actually expand that. And I think that's a challenge that that everyone's having um, who recognizes that sense of community and needs that sense of community. And how do you kind of recreate, recreate the water cooler? So even if we're not talking about the right. softball or the basketball, it's just the water cooler, you know. The, the kismet of ideas. I imagine so many amazing ideas at NASA have been formulated by two people bumping into each other, talking about a problem and coming up with a solution. And how do you, you know, promote that diversity of thought when you now have to schedule a Zoom via Calendly and get someone's time? And that's not an authentic way to to brainstorm, whiteboard, or, or even you know introduce you know the the kismet concept. Well, and, and actually, from a from a leader perspective, you know, it's it's so important the uh, you know management by by walking around and and just bumping into folks and and kind of seeing how they're doing. 
um, NASA is a heavy user of, of Microsoft Teams. Yeah. And what what I like as a leader about Teams is that you, you can see when someone is green, when someone is available. And so you can kind of virtually do the pop in right. uh, with them and 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 just catch up. So I, I like doing that from time to time, just um, you know, not with a, any kind of work agenda, just just as I would do if I were in the office. Popping your head in the door, right? How you doing? Popping in and just uh, sitting down and chatting a bit and <laughs> popping in, disrupting. Yeah, whether they like it or not. Yeah, <laughs> I'm coming in. I'm yes, interrupting yes. you, and you're gonna love it. And and there's something amazing I'm about slowing that. you down. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And you can curse me on the way out. That's no problem. But these three minutes are <laughs> happening uh, because they're important to me. I, I I love that, and I really I really appreciate that a lot. Um, you know, rolling back to this sense of community, this sense of camaraderie. You know, you guys achieve incredible things. And so I can imagine the hurrah parties are, are pretty incredible at NASA, uh, as I imagine now in the rest of the space industry. You know, when we think about the business that I'm in, which is what happens when you leave and how companies can maintain that connection, you know, especially with NASA, where you have invested such a significant amount of time and energy to find that talent, wherever that talent is, again, janitor to astronaut, to develop that talent, to relocate competency, skills, all of those things, and they do choose to leave. Um, and they likely stay in the ecosystem, partner, you know, similar space industry, I imagine. How do, does NASA have an approach formally or a thought around kind of how you leave the organization and how, you know, we make sure that you feel fab about the accomplishments you've had here? Yeah, so the, NASA does a, does a great job of um, celebrating people's careers when, when they do decide to leave NASA. Um, and so there's a lot of celebration of, uh, what was accomplished, the legacy that was, that was left. And then we do have a formal, um, NASA alumni league that, that folks can join and be part of, uh, no matter where they go, if they're truly retiring and, and going to do other things, or if they're going to another employer. Um, and we, we have good engagement in that. It's not, uh, it's not everyone. Who, who leaves NASA uh, participates in that, but we've got a fair amount in in that NASA alumni league. And a lot of cases, um, different different leaders, different organizations um, reach out to that alumni league for perspectives. Um, and particularly if they're thinking about uh, you know new mission challenges or new new mission approaches, a lot of times reaching out to that alumni league. Hey, is there any lessons learned from the past that would benefit us as we're uh, as we're thinking about this future engagement? Um, that's amazing. So that that's one formal way. We also, you know, for for targeted skill areas, we we do um, sometimes bring back uh, retirees on on expert or consulting appointments um, where specific uh, knowledge is required. But that alumni league can. Uh, if, if you want to stay part of NASA uh, for life, uh, you have that, that ability to do so. Yeah. And I mean, that's amazing. And you talk about the retiree thing. We actually saw corporations doing that in the past two years where they realized that their senior leadership are amazing, but perhaps haven't had skill going through and recovering from a crisis. 
And so they looked to their retirees that went through 9-11, that went through the financial crisis and said, look, we don't need you to come in and work. We need you to come in and give us your perspective and coach and mentor and be a friend to our senior leadership team to bounce their ideas off because we're going through a time that's a unknown in terms of length and 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 so forth but also the skills for a rebound and the skills for a rebuild are very different than the skills for a build and so when you touched on the retirees you know you started you know this is a great area where the private sector has followed from nasa basically of how do we keep touch with these people because when we need something we need something and we want to make sure that they are excited to say yes that they have a good sentiment about our organization and and that they will say yes. And so I think a lot of organizations are changing their mentality that basically says, look, we want to, your words exactly, we should celebrate you when you walk out of the door. You're walking out with these amazing accomplishments. This is what you've done for the organization. And whether you're going to a competitor or retiring, it doesn't change the accomplishments you've had inside of this organization and you should be clapped out. And and. and and so I love to hear that about NASA. I mean, it's very similar. Salesforce use the same words that they celebrate every employee on their way out. Doesn't matter where they're going because they've had an impact on the on the on the organization. Um, you know, when I think about that, you know, exit process and that alumni league and that you know bringing back experts. Do you? Is there a formal process going from exit to the alumni league, or is it a known process, a known thing? And it's just a natural progression. Is it part of your kind of HR life cycle that leaving is actually being thought about when we're designing the employee experience? Yeah, it it actually the the alumni league is a is a separate organization, so it's not part of um, not not part of our HR process, but it is uh, well known and well advertised. So it's a it's a separate. Um, I think they might even be a, a nonprofit. Yeah, they are a formal nonprofit organization, um, but they, they gather together. They actually do, uh, different events again. Um, that, that sense of community is, is so strong at NASA that, you know, a lot of folks want that to continue, uh, into retirement or, or into their next, next phase of their career. So, um, yeah, not not part of our formal process, but it's, it's well understood, uh, in the workforce, uh, that, that, that option is there and available and, and it ends up being a great tool for us to, to use at, at the agency. That's amazing. And as we kind of start to wrap up, I have a couple of personal questions. The first is how your kid uh, thinks about my dad works at NASA. You talked about your young family early in the days, uh, earlier in the call. Uh, I've got to imagine that it's just an amazing thing to be able to say my dad works at NASA and this is what he does. Well, it's a, it's a funny thing, James, because when you're in the we're in, when you're in this community and in the Houston community, um, there are a lot of people that work at NASA. Of course, uh, you you rub shoulders with with the astronauts, so it it doesn't doesn't probably have the same feel that you're thinking it would have. Uh, so disappointing. Because <laughs> it's just it's it's another employer uh, here locally, right? Um, you know, certainly I I feel the uh, the the pride working there, and um, but I don't. Uh, I don't know if my kids quite appreciate that. Uh, just it's, uh, there's too many others, uh, in the community and there's astronauts in the community. You're immediately delegated. Yeah. I mean, I mean, even the astronauts kids to, to some extent, uh, I think probably don't fully comprehend 
how special that is. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I guess when you're living it, you don't necessarily see it from outside the fishbowl, and that's that's totally fair right. and totally re- reasonable. Uh, my final question about all of this, um, and Brady, thank you. Your insights has been so amazing to listen to. It is, I guess, where where you see you know, the HR function of, of NASA going, as you talk about moving to A, you've moved to centralized, but now you're starting to see companies say that HR is a is a thought, is an idea that just permeates across the entire organization. It goes from being a cost center and, you know, area actually to being a profit center. And, and it has a mandate to not be a nice to have, it's a must have profit center that delivers and drives core value to the organization and must have a seat at every table. Um, as we see this amazing change and transformation of how HR is looked at as the foundation of every organization, you know, what does that hold for kind of you and NASA? Yeah, so I'm, I'm really pleased that that our, our HR executives um, are those strategic partners uh, to our agency leaders. So. Um, the HR executives that support each of our center directors have that seat at the table and are and are trying to figure out how to align workforce strategy with, um, you know, with the strategies that they're uh, they're taking to support the agency mission. Um, really, for us, I, I would see the big challenge. Um, you know, when you when you think of NASA, you probably think, uh, you know, wow, uh, their HR is probably high tech and. Um, you know, what, what you see in the movies kind of thing, but we're actually probably about 15, 20 years behind, um, most companies on a, from a technology perspective, we, we built a lot of homegrown HR systems about 20 years ago, um, and really haven't invested much in tools and technology. The way we see our, our function going is we're, as we're moving more to this uh, single approach to HR to support NASA, we've we've got to leverage uh, technology and have more uh, tech touch initially with our employees and our managers. Um, have have more direct access to systems and tools, um, and then get them connected with uh, with people um, down the road. We've got to reduce kind of our labor footprint, uh, if you will, across human capital. So right. that's really, uh, the, the journey we're on next is, is really trying to, uh, figure out how to, how to leverage technology better, um, going forward and trying to catch up with, with, uh, some of the best in industry at that. That's amazing. An amazing insight. One, one assumes it's NASA. Everything's high tech. Everything's the most recent, but there's this huge, you know, differences again between enterprises in the public sector, also new businesses, SpaceX and so forth versus you guys that, you know, you also have to pay for some of the legacy decisions made rightly or wrongly. Um, Brady, just so amazing. Thank you for your insights. Thank you for your time. I'm so glad we got to hear your story. Um, I know people can find you on LinkedIn. I know you have your website as well. They can find via LinkedIn. Uh, I'd love you to have the final word. I'd love you to tell anybody how they might find you, what you're interested in, anything you'd like to add to this because uh, you've been an amazing guest. I'm so appreciative of your time. Yeah, thank you so much, James. I, the The brand of your co- podcast being People First is uh, really resonates because you know we had shifted during the um response to the pandemic we had always been mission first uh, people always um, in nasa human capital and we've shifted that to to people first mission always 
Um, and we've really seen kind of agency leadership uh, embrace that, taking care of the people and making sure people are safe during um, all that we're dealing with now. And uh, so we, we continue to, to kind of take that approach going forward. And so it was a pleasure to be, be part of this podcast where that's your focus as well. So thanks for what you're doing and uh, making a difference in the world. Thank you so much, Brady. Have a great day. All right, you too. Thank you. The People Experience Podcast is brought to you by Alumni X. To find out more about how we enable organizations to attract, engage, and activate their alumni community, head to alumniex.com. Make sure to search for People Experience anywhere good podcasts are found and subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. On behalf of the team here at Alumni X, thanks for listening.